This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 55, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we're talking hunting heritage and hunter numbers with Ryan Fuhrer of Quality Deer Management Association. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And today we are joined uh, by Ryan Fuhrer, and we're covering a lot of topics that I think are probably going to be, um, I guess what I'll say is very important to hunting overall. So looking forward to the conversation with Ryan. We're going to cover a, a wide range of things, everything from hunting heritage to you know, a few things specific to habitat, but mainly going to focus on hunting hunting on the whole and uh, how it's kind of shaping up what the the numbers look like in terms of statistics and, and so forth and, and what, you know, the, the, the horizon has for hunting as uh, as we know it today. And uh, so before we hop on the phone with Ryan, of course, I have my my trusty colleague, Johnny Utah Mulligan, coming in from the great state of Iowa. How you doing, brother? What is happening Dude, Man, you're still under snow out there. Dude, I'm getting ready to get like another foot. You kidding me? Like it's it's there is <laughs> there is no rest for the wicked. I literally just checked the forecast before we hopped on here and it has changed just about hourly it seems like for like the past 2 days where it went from oh it's going to completely miss us to now it's like the minimum amount I'm going to get is probably 12 inches. So That's crazy. Yeah. Like man. somebody needs to um remind you it's uh tomorrow's first day of spring so um yeah that could stop at any time yeah it's it's really kind of putting a a damper on any type of shed hunting i've been able to not do uh, because i've basically been under snow the entire time and then i'm supposed to of course be going to you know do a scout um 
this weekend as well, which I'm kind of, you know, a little bit of snow I don't mind, which helps, you know, but, you know, a foot of snow isn't going to do me any favors for that. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, hopefully the weatherman is wrong as he often is, but it seems like this winter, man, he's been kind of spot on every time, unfortunately. But how are things with you, man? What's going on? Um, well, we don't have snow. Um, so shed hunting for me is pretty much wrapping up. It's, um, you know, it's, I've already started taking some soil samples for food plots. Got nice. a couple of mineral sites going. Nice. A couple of cameras are out already. Um, so, you know, we'll be turkey season here uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, well, probably three, three more weeks from now. So that's kind of, that's where I'm at. I'm in that, I'm transitioning over. Uh, I can't say that I found, you know, a shed off of a buck that's going to be 200 inches. Um, but I, you know, I picked up a few, I think I ended up with about 17 this year. So I, you know, I'm not going to complain. Um, you know, you find one shed and you want to find a million more. So, um, but I'm cool with that. Yeah. Well, you're seven, you're (laughs) 17 ahead of me. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah, just your, your sheds are just being like preserved under a block of snow and ice, you know, so they're, Heck, if they're there, at least maybe the squirrels aren't able to get to them, you know? Yeah, I know that's the only the only possible saving grace. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that the snow isn't nearly as bad back in Ohio cuz or toward Ohio cuz my plan is for this weekend, you know, it's I, I'm supposed to head to Ohio and it's a scout, you know, I won't call it a shed hunt necessarily, but scouting to kind of get ready for next year and um every year mm-hmm. it seems like I've not pushed it to the last minute, but the scouting that I've done for the out of state hunts and stuff has always kind of happened over the summer. Um, over the summer months, which, you know, you take what you can get, but you know, this year I really wanted to get out there this time of year. Um, you know, what the leaves are still off the trees and I can really kind of see any of the trails that are being run pretty sure. hard and, and stuff like that. And then also, you know, um, good thing is, is, you know, uh, uh able to kind of see the trees you might want to climb that way you can go ahead and, you know, take a pole saw, like a tree gear, a pole saw on with you and be able to do some trimming right now, as opposed to having to, you know, do all that trimming, you know, during the, you know, during the course of the season, whenever I get out there, cause I basically just go out and do a bunch of hanging hunts. Um, and so this would actually be the first year where I could actually do a little bit of planning for where I want to hang some stands and, and get some trees trimmed up and, and stuff like that. But that's kind of my mm-hmm. plan. And then I was hoping to get some, some uh, shed hunting done on my dad's new property to see, you know, cause we've had all this snow, which has kind of been a bummer. Um, and I usually suck really bad at finding sheds. Um, however, you know, that property that my dad picked up actually has a lot of really good thermal cover. And when we did get a little bit of snow there in December, I scouted it and found where a lot of the beds were, um, you know, because you, of course, could see where they had it. You know, the, the, there was no snow on the ground. It was you know, really easy to see, see where the beds were at. Um, so my plan was to kind of go back through there in those areas and see if I could find any sheds because uh, it seemed like those were a handful of spots where they were kind of hunkering down when the when the weather got shitty and, uh, and of course, you know, same as you, man, you know, getting ready to do some, take some soil samples. I got the, uh, the Tecumani clover to do some, uh, to, some, uh, frost seeding that I plan to do to kind of keep the, the one clover field kind of primed. And, um, those are kind yep. of my plans that I'm hope, hoping mother nature lets me, lets me kind of do, man. I'm getting primed up for Turkey season. I, I got, I pulled the Turkey call out in the truck the other day when I called my father-in-law and gave him a Yelp while, while he picked up the phone. <laughs> That's what I know. It's like, it's like I'm primed and ready for Turkey season. When, it, when I busted out and I call from to and from work. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be here before you know it. Um, you know, pictures are starting to pop up all over social media. Um, you know, people down in Florida and Texas are already, you know, laying them down. So, yeah, 
it'll be here before you know it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's um, it was it was kind of a long winter. Um, been really really busy with a lot of work stuff. So it'll be nice to to get out there and kind of chase some chase some critters around. You know, again. Yeah, man. Do you? Uh, no, I'm curious, man. I know you, you you've got a knack for the birds um, more so than mm-hmm. me. So, do you are you a, a mouth call guy or a slate call guy? No, no. So, um, go dissect into the anatomy of John's mouth. Um, I <laughs> this have is, this is going to be weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a very sure. uh, narrow palate, I believe, is the way it's described. Right. Um, so even like the youth model calls and stuff like that, even if I take a full size call and I trim it down, they just don't fit into like the roof of my mouth, um, you know, as well. Um, so anyways, yeah, I suck, um, at mouth calls. I, I'm not kidding you. This is no exaggeration. I have purchased probably 40 different mouth calls. I've been given 30 calls, you know, from homemade guys that just say, oh, trust me, I've got a call for you. Right. Anybody can make this, you know, can run this call. And I'm like, sure, I'll give it a whirl. I'm like, nope, didn't work. Um, so, dude, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, slate caller. Um, I've got a couple of aluminum calls I like. I've got a couple of glass ones that I like real well. Nice. Um, but, yeah, man, I'm a freaking uh, pot call and stick striker striker guy you know nice yeah it's uh which kind of sucks when you're bow hunting because you know typically it takes both hands you know but yeah um you know it is what it is i usually my theory man i i get them primed and and there's been some birds that i've really had to work and really had to work and really had to work but in my experience with my decoy spread once i get them committed then i can you know i can put down put down my calls grab my bow get the camera stuff going and and i'm good to go Right. Yeah. I, uh, so in, in the past I've used a slate call, right. And I'm, I'm, I would say that I'm, I'm barely average at calling just in general. And last year I went to a mouth call only because I wanted to have my hands free. Um, and I like mouth calling. Um, but it's just one of those things, man, where it's, you know, I have a buddy who is, um, he's actually a really good caller and, uh, and I don't even know if that's, that's what you call it, you know, a caller. Is that the, is that the, is that the right term? This is showing my like noviceness when it comes to turkey talk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You can, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, he's a, he's a good caller. That, that works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but he also ha- doesn't have any teeth. So there's that. So he's got like, he's got like the smooth, like, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if that goes into it, but he takes his teeth out and throws the call in, man. And it's like, and he just murders it. And the dude sounds exactly like a turkey. It's crazy. Um, and so I used to hunt with him some cause he's, he's an older fellow that I'm, I'm really good friends with and he just get a kick out of calling, calling birds in. And so then, uh, I was like, you know, I want to try a mouth call. So I, last year I, I grabbed one and I, I called him the one day and, and he answered the phone and I hit the Turkey call when he picked up the phone and he was like, yeah, I'm not sure, man. He's like, that sounds like that might, that guy might have some problems. Like he might be a little bit handicapped or something. He's like, I'm not sure. He's like, you might want to try to, uh, might want to stick to the old slate call quite possibly for, uh, for hunting season. <laughs> But I did manage to work one bird with the mouth call last year. Um, it didn't come in. It was on its way, and then we got blown out by thunderstorms with my daughter trying to get a trying to get her a bird. Um, and then I managed to work him again, but it just it, it wasn't going to happen. He was he the, the jig was up. He was hip to what was going on. Um, so I don't know. This year I think I'll give the mouth call a, a try again and uh, see see what happens. I'm not uh, I'm not sure if my returns will be any different than usual. But man, 
I don't know, it's spring and you just want to get outside and be in like the semi warm weather. It's kind of nice to be back in a blind with a, with a bow in hand and calling and just, you know, those early mornings, even though you hate them sometimes during deer season, but it's always nice those early mornings, uh, to kind of hit the timber and hear, hear the woods come alive and stuff, man. So yeah, it's good for that at least. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's, uh, well, and you know, speaking of calls, you know, once I realized that I, I couldn't run a mouth call for crap, um, it seems like every trade show I'd go to, there'd be some company, some some local, some guys, you know, making them on the spot, some making them out of their, their basement or whatever. And um, I would try to support, you know, uh, an up-and-coming, you know, turkey call maker or something like that. And, right. and then I got into the point where I was almost collecting um, – you know, they're like, this one is like a teak wood with a walnut overlay. And I'm like, this is just like a piece of art. You know, right. I was like, I want to buy this call just because it's cool looking, you know. And Right. But I've probably come up with a collection of about a dozen of them or so. And, um, you know, I've got some that I use for windy days, uh, some that are a little louder. I want to reach out mm-hmm. some that purr, uh, purr a little bit better and. Some yelp a little bit better, some are a little softer, and some are a little more raspy. And right, yeah. So I usually will take, I'll usually take three or four different ones with me in my pack, and um, you know, I tell myself that I'm choosing the right call for the conditions, mm-hmm. but in reality, I'm probably just getting lucky more than anything. Right. Um, so, right. or you know. I'm calling in the Tom that anybody could call in, you know? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, but you're taking three with me, man. You know, you mean business. Like I just happen to take, like, I don't know how many times I've, I've woke up like, you know, to, to do a Turkey hunt. And like, I just ended up grabbing whatever Turkey call was on the gun rest at at the cabin before I walked out the door. I was just like, yep, (laughs) this one will do. I'm taking this one. Um, (laughs) so that's often what has happened. Like I would say last year was probably the first year that I was like, okay, this is the call I'm going to use. And like that. And I took it to the woods with that purpose. Um, which shows you about how much planning that I have that goes, that goes into it, which probably has a large part to do with why I'm typically unsuccessful Turkey hunting. So (laughs) I think I I could probably, somebody could film me in a blind and I can make one of those dude, perfect videos, you know, like um, (laughs) the parodies about the guy that has too many calls. Yeah. Now this call here, this is for the old bird and this call here, this is for the bird. That's kind of about a mile away, you know? (laughs) Right. Um, right. Now I do have a cool, I don't know. It's, I was gonna say, they all sound a little different. Yeah, they do. I do have a cool old Turkey call. So my, my grandpa, when he had passed away, he was a big Turkey hunter. And so like my mom gave me all like his turkey calls and crow calls and you know everything that he had basically for for turkey hunting. He didn't really hunt much else. He didn't he wasn't a big deer hunter. Um he was just a really big turkey hunter. That's what he was into. And uh so I got this old box call. And it sounds great. Like it sounds awesome, but it's it's kind of fragile cuz it's old. So it's like I never want to take it with me in the woods or anything like that. And so I actually had it, it was in a bag and it was laying in, you know in the at, at the cabin in the, in the basement. And uh, I grabbed it the one day and I was just curious. I was like, man, I was like, I wonder what year this is. So I started looking around on it to find a year and I wanted to see if I could find the brand name on it because everything's kind of wore off of it. And I ended up, I forget what the name of the brand is, but it's a well-known box call brand. And I think it's, it might be one of the first box call manufacturers ever. And I looked up the serial number that was on it and it's actually like worth money. Like it's like a collector's like box call or whatever. Um, cause they didn't make that many in that year or whatever year it was. It was, it was a rare find or whatever, which was kind of crazy. Cause my grandpa probably bought it like the year that it came out at the, 
like the hardware store down the street and then just kept it his entire life. And I remember him using that box call whenever I was a kid too. So it's like, he's had it for, for, for forever and has killed many birds with that thing. So my goal is to one day actually use that and kill something using that. That's awesome. That's pretty cool, dude. Yeah. What's well, funny. Cause like, as you were talking about calls, I was like, oh, let me crack open this box here. I've got this one crate that next to my office where I've got a bunch of, um, you know, seasonal stuff, you know, when turkey season's over, right. I throw all my turkey season in this box, you know? Right. So I was actually just breaking, uh, grabbing a couple of them and, uh, making sure, making sure I got everything. Yeah. I do need to get a new turkey call though. Cause unfortunately the mouth call that I liked last year, I accidentally left it in a pair of pants pockets and it got washed and dried. And so, so that one's over. Uh, so that will necessitate purchasing yet another turkey call that may or may not work for me, but such is life, I guess. Maybe I need to get some turkey calling lessons from you, man. Maybe that's maybe that's the deal. So yeah, uh, as far as giving you some lessons on turkey calling, um, that's not a problem. I don't know that I'm the best teacher in the world. Like I said, I fall on uh, I fall back on the the Irish luck probably more than anything. Right. But, um, well, if you, could... I, you know, it's kind of one of those deals, man. The first couple of years that I went turkey hunting, I just really didn't know anything about it at all. Mm-hmm. There was a buddy of mine back in Kentucky. He took me a few times and we went six or seven times, uh, in a row, sometimes morning, sometimes afternoon, sometimes midday. And, uh, I heard a bird gobble once or twice. It seemed like it was five miles away or something, but right. And then I realized that I'm actually pretty deaf. So if I can hear a turkey gobble, he's got to be fairly close. Right. Um, ended up shooting a bird with a shotgun. And it's uh, the only time I've ever shot any animal with a shotgun before. But hmm. I shot my first bird with a shotgun. And then after that, I went to bow. And um, it's a little different, you know, sitting in a ground blind. But right. you kind of rely on that decoy spread, or at least I do. Right. I rely on the decoy spread. But... If you're dedicated to a blind and a decoy spread with a bow, you kind of got to be in the hot spot because it's, if you're not, it's not like you're going to tear apart your decoy spread, tear down your blind and go run in two ridges over, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, I think part of my challenges too, is I usually when I go out, it's like, I usually take my daughter and I'm trying to at least get her to see a bird and hear some birds and stuff like that. And then, you know, I run out of time during the course of the season with, you know, normal, you know, life shit, I guess, you know, and I don't get to get out as often on my own as I would like. And then this year I'm adding, of course, taking my daughter out and then, but I'm adding, I'm taking a buddy out from work who's never hunted before. And, uh, I've shared some game with him a little bit and so forth. And he's kind of, you know, like the venison and the elk that I've shared with him and stuff. And then I shared some goose with him and he really liked that. And so I kind of was like, Hey, I was like, you know, you like all this wild game. I was like, what are you thinking about? You know, try to, you know, trying to go get some for yourself. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, I was like, you want to go turkey hunting? He was like, I'd love to, man. He's like, I've never hunted before. And I was like, perfect. I was like, it's he's so he's actually taking his hunter safety course this week online and getting his license. And we're going to take him to the, um, to a place my buddy Wilson has that we can go shoot some shotguns with him or whatever and, and kind of go through that with him. He's, he's shot like, uh, clay pigeons and stuff before. So he has shot, you know, a shotgun before and has shot, shot a gun. Um, but he's never hunted in his life. He's, you know, in his mid thirties. And, uh, he was just like, man, it'd be great to get out and just like, you know, have some, you know, peace and quiet and listen to the woods and, you know, watch it come alive at sunup and, 
And he's like, if I get this chew to turkey, he's like, and, and be able to eat it. He's like, man, that's just like the icing on the cake. So I'm pretty, I mean, I'm probably not going to get as much turkey time as I'd maybe want this year, but I'm kind of using, you know, this spring to try to, you know, get my, continue to get my daughter out and then try to introduce someone new to, to the timber that hopefully, you know, they'll, hopefully they'll pick it up and, and enjoy it enough that they'll, he'll want to do it on his own. Hopefully is the goal. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I, when I got, when I first started turkey hunting, I had, um, you know, I had somebody take me the first time. So, um, I didn't know anything about the sport. Um, I will say that that guy, um, he kind of did, he dedicated his season to getting me a bird. I mean, that was, uh, that was the whole goal. Um, I had been two or three times over the previous couple of seasons um, but then finally, you know, this one particular season, I just said, man, I said, I really, really want to get a bird. He said, all right, by God, we're going to get you a bird, you know? Nice. And I swear, I think he was more excited when I killed one than I was because it meant he could actually start hunting himself again, you know what right. I mean? And, <laughs> right. and, and I wasn't tagging along, you know, but, uh, right. but yeah, it's pretty cool. It's, um, I mean, I tell you, I like I like the birds, you know, cause it's interactive. You're like you're calling at them and they're answering and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about scent control and, yeah. you know, it's just kind of a fun season. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's those guys, man, that they, they count down the days to turkey season. And that's, that's not me. I yeah. really enjoy it, but nowhere near like I do whitetails. Yeah. No, I'm kind of in the same, the same boat, man, where it's like any other season that I hunt, you know, it's like this past winter, I started picking up goose hunting and that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I know we talked about that a little bit in, you know, some previous podcasts where for me, that was more just like I was able to go out, didn't have to worry about scent control, didn't have to worry about really how loud I was being, you know, have a have a mug of coffee there with me, hang out with a couple of guys. Yep. Some birds come in, you, you, you fire some rounds, you go pick them up and it's like it's a nice, you know, fun morning and relaxing kind of hunt for me. Turkey hunting is kind of the same same type of deal. You know, that's the weather's a little nicer. It's, it's an easy way for me to kind of continue to introduce my, my daughter to hunting, you know, cause she's the temperatures conducive for her wanting to go out and, and sit in the morning and, and stuff like that. And, um, but, you know, and it's not like, you know, deer hunting necessarily where it's like, she can move around a little bit in a blind at least, you know what I mean? Unless there's, you know, something on, on the move toward us, you know, if, if once it, something starts to get close and she has to kind of sit still, but like at least she's in the blind and she you know, has, can move a little bit. Um, you know, don't have to worry about, you know, her wearing her whatever hand lotion now that she's like nine and getting into that preteen where everything she puts on smells like something from a tropical forest somewhere <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like, that's not a, yep. that's not a big deal necessarily. Um, you know, so it's, it's good to get her out and, 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 and do that kind of stuff. I don't, to your point, it's like, I don't necessarily count down the days. Um, but there is something about it that I do start to get fired up. And for me, it's almost like, I think it kind of signals like like whitetail season's kind of starting for me. Like, like almost like Turkey season kind of signifies like the start of whitetail season for me, because I do some stuff in the off season, you know what I mean? I kind of get ready. I do a little bit of scouting and stuff like that. But like once Turkey season really hits, it's like, that's when the food plotting really starts. And that's where, you know, habitat management stuff really starts. And like the cameras are back out and the mineral stations, if, you know, depending on, you know, not back on my home properties, but maybe out around, you know, this Eastern part of the state where you can still use, you know, mineral stations and stuff like all that stuff's back out and kind of starting to make plans for, you know, the upcoming whitetail year. So for me, it's like turkey season's great, but it signifies like, okay, it's time to shift gears and start to get into the, the mental, the mental whitetail prep mode. Exactly. 
Yeah. yeah, it's almost like you get to go out a few times and do a few dry runs, you know? Yeah. You take some gear into the woods and bring the gear back home, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, cool, man. I think that that's a pretty good, like, segue where we were talking about, you know, getting my buddy out into the woods and stuff like that and, and, and you know, spring coming up and talking about, you know, introducing some new people to the timber and stuff like that to kind of launch into the uh, the Ryan Fuhr uh, conversation. But before we do that, I want to take a quick second to talk about our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible first we're first and foremost we are brought to you by wicked tree gear the longest lastest fastest cutting toughest tree trimming equipment and the toughest saws on earth and right now when you visit wickedtreegear.com use the promo code truth t-r-u-t-h at checkout and get a 20 percent discount on your wicked purchase we're also brought to you by exodus outdoor gear life's a passion pursue it these guys make kick-ass cameras backed by a five-year warranty and a theft policy if you haven't yet check out exodusoutdoorgear.com and order one of their, their lift or trek cameras and if you use the promo code truth at checkout you will save 20 bucks we're also brought to you by tecamani seed i'll be using that this weekend to do some frost seeding mother nature permitting of course uh, everything's bigger in texas and johnny as always give me a hell yeah Hell yeah. And no matter if you're from the South, the North, the Midwest, uh, or the East Coast, Tecumani has your food plot needs covered. Visit Tecumani.com and check out their product selector tool to help you pick the right seed for your food plots. Use the promo code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, at checkout and save 20%. And we are also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. Promo code TRUTH and save yourself 20%. So with that, man, any more updates or are we good to roll into the Ryan conversation? No, that's about it, man. I'm going to head off to the gym and then um, come back home and schedule some more social media posts for the companies. Nice, man. Well, go get your swole on. Make sure you get your salad in like you had earlier today. want to make sure you're fully nourished before the the gym and uh, let's go ahead and get Ryan out in. All right, we are live. Welcome back, and you're listening to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today, we are joined by a good buddy of mine, Ryan Fuhr of uh, QDMA. Uh, Ryan, if, you, if you've listened to any of the podcasts, I guess some of our early podcasts, Ryan was one of the first folks that we had on on podcast number six, where we, we covered in depth a lot of... Uh, a lot of topics, you know, related to uh, QDM cooperatives and kind of building a relationship, you know, in your neighborhood to, um, you know, support better deer herd management and just better hunting and, and supporting one another's hunting goals at, at large within an area. And today we're stoked to have Ryan on. He and I have talked talked a lot offline um, in, in 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 regards to you know hunting heritage and, and, and hunter retention and access. And license sales and you name it, you know, we've taught, we've discussed it. And that's really what we want to dive in today. But before we jump in to all of that, Ryan, how are you doing, my friend? Good, Clint. Real good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet, man. I know I know we were talking a little bit here before we got started. It seems like you missed some of the nasty weather. I'm a, I'm a little jealous about that. Yeah, we were very fortunate. It uh it went north of us. I'm down in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. So uh we got high winds and a lot of rain, but uh no snow. Yeah. 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 I wish, uh, I wish I could say bad for you, but not that bad. <laughs> not bad enough to, <laughs> not bad enough to have to deal with it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> nice. So like I'd mentioned, I know we had you on before and I'm, I'm sure some folks out there listening are probably, you know, aware of who you are, what you do and, and probably at least, um, 
you know, on the on a on, from a fringe perspective, aware of what QDMA does as a whole. But if you wouldn't mind, just give us, you know, a quick, I guess, Cliff Notes version of of your background and uh, you know where you're from. Uh, sure. Well, the QDMA, um, obviously, uh, we're for the betterment of the future of the white-tailed deer and the habitat uh, that they may live in. So, I guess in layman's term, I tell people. Um, that we're kind of like uh, NWTF or Ducks Unlimited, but except for turkeys and ducks, we're for the white-tailed deer. So anything that uh, may come across the white-tailed deer's uh, landscape, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, we kind of we kind of look into that. We raise money to do habitat projects, um, education. Obviously, disease is a big issue right now, so we do a lot of advocacy on that end as well. Uh, my role with QDMA, I uh, started, I believe this will be going on eight years. Uh, eight years ago, I was hired as a regional director for the Northeast. So basically, I covered everything from southern West Virginia all the way up through New England. So it was fairly new, uh, extremely big territory. Yeah, um, and diverse habitat, all the way up too. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, southern West Virginia, the mountain country, um, in the Pennsylvania, eastern part of Ohio. And then uh, I had a branch in Maine, actually, it was 1,600 miles from my door to theirs. Uh, so, yeah, definitely diverse habitat when you're looking at the landscape for white-tailed deer, but pretty unique. But uh, it was neat to see that, you know, all the people, you know, everybody you come across, especially in the Northeast, or the common, uh, one common denominator was the white-tailed deer and the future of them. So, uh, in trying to ensure the future of them. Right. Um, since then, I've, I've been promoted. Um, so I am now the senior regional director and field supervisor. So basically, I oversee um, 10 regional directors throughout the country. So <clears throat> just make sure, you know, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And uh, I still get out there a lot. Except for now, when I used to be in the Northeast, I, I travel throughout the country meeting with people uh, in, in the QDMA world. Nice. So how did you, what's your, you know, I guess your, your background beyond QDMA, how did you join QDMA? Like, how did you get involved? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Uh, you know, I became a member. I'm not even sure how many years ago, obviously I was a, a big way tail deer guy. Um, bow hunting was my passion. I was a competitive archer. I like to say in a past life. Right. Um, <laughs> it was so, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, yeah. So I guess in 2000 and Two, I was the national archery champion. I I worked on and off for a couple of different bow companies and dealer advisors and such, and um, shot my bow forever. Uh, literally started shooting a bow competitive, competitively when I was about eight years old, uh, but only to be a better bow hunter. Um, <laughs> when I was young, you know, I, I had a hard time hitting hitting a bow or excuse me, hitting a deer with a bow and arrow. So I just started shooting it a lot, and then. I guess I have a competitive side and that kind of rolled into the, the tournaments and, and such. But, um, yeah, I shot, you know, literally hundreds of arrows a day sometimes and <clears throat> started winning some bigger tournaments. And then next thing I knew, I, I um, owned my own archery shop uh, for, for, I guess, for about eight years. I owned and operated an archery shop with carried eight different bow lines. So I, I've literally been, you know, quote unquote, in the industry since I was a little kid. Um while bow hunting, I obviously was interested in habitat and white-tailed deer and age structure and everything that goes along with it. So I became a QDMA member. Um, I'm not even sure how old I was then. Probably, I would guess, my late teens or 20, 21, maybe somewhere in that area. And I just saw John posting one day um, as they were looking for a regional director. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, I had just gotten out of my bow shop. I, I sold it and... 
um, because the, the being a business owner took me away from the, the tournament side of archery and I was kind of missing that. So, and then all of a sudden I see this job posting and it was right to right time. And it's like, well, I may give that a try. See, you know, I honestly didn't think I would get the job. <laughs> um, I kind of applied for it like, yeah, why not type of deal? And then, you know, went through, I think I remember three interview processes and, and wow, here I am. And, and, uh, I really think it was destined to be, um, I have, my life has evolved around the whitetail deer in one, one way, shape or form. So, uh, being hired by the QDMA was probably without a doubt the best fit there was for me. I love my job. Um, you know, sometimes I can't believe what I do for a living actually, you know? So when people say find, find the job that, uh, you love and it's not like a job, I truly do believe I have that I'm in that position right now. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you and I've got to know each other a little bit over the past, you know, year and a half, two years through, you know, text messages, phone calls and running into each other at, at events and so forth. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt, you know, the, uh, the, the deer hunting community is certainly lucky to have you on our side. Cause I don't think I've met, yeah, I don't, I've not met many people that are more ate up with deer hunting and wanted to make sure that, you know, it's, it sticks around for a long time more so than, than you do, but you know, spe- oh, well, thank you. yeah, yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's, uh, um, meeting you and talking to you for about 30 seconds is all, all it takes to, to, to know where your heart lies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, uh, I wanted to ask you, speaking of bow hunting, how was, uh, before we jump into all the, uh, all, all the stuff we want to cover today, how was your season this year? Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. I had a really good season. Um, probably the biggest highlight of my season this year is, uh, um, my son killed his first deer this year. There you go. Um, first, yeah, first deer ever. So. Uh, that was awesome. That was in, in our rifle season, in Pennsylvania rifle season through the mentor program. So that was probably the highlight. The second highest, the, the second highlight of the season for me was I killed a buck in Pennsylvania while he was in the stand with me. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't hunting. He was just basically an observer and that's kind of how I grew up. Um, you know, when I was young and, and wasn't able to hunt, I, I tagged along type of deal. And he tagged along with me and it worked out to where, um, it was a super cool hunt. Uh, it was, you know, that perfect time in October, like second, third week of October when deer, we had a cold front and deer were up on their feet. And, um, I had two year and a half old bucks actually sparring about 60 yards from us. And then I heard another deer walking in the, uh, in the, in the frozen leaves. And I started to snort wheeze at him and it ended up being a three-year-old eight point. He come down off the hill, uh, run off the other two bucks, stood in a scrape down there. And I literally, I knew he couldn't see up where we were. We were kind of looking down below him, had the wind perfect. And every time he, he was rubbing and scraping, he was just destroying this, this, this tree. And every time he would stop, I would just wheeze at him because I knew he couldn't see me. And he was within you know 65 yards or so. Right. And I could tell through his, his body, um, his body language that he was just getting more aggressive he'd get into that tree again and and tear it up and every time he would stop where i knew he could hear i I would just wheeze at him and i think it was i tried to keep track it was i want to say the 13th or 14th wheeze and he finally just had enough and he broke stride and and uh he literally just marched straight up over the hill across the creek up over the hill and it was funny because I was telling we were in a two man ladder stand. I take the middle section out. So it's not so high. So we were only about seven, seven and a half feet off the ground. And I was, you know, kind of leaning back behind the tree, pointing my son to watch right here. Cause this buck's, you know, he's going to appear. Now we could hear him, but he couldn't see him. And I think I was watching my son when the buck appeared 
And I think that he thought it was going to be like 40 or 50 yards away. And it, it was literally about 10 yards, 11 yards. And when he come around the side of the tree, my, my son did the whole juking thing, you know, and, and it kind of scared him. And I saw his eyes open up and, and it's like, whoa, it's right there, you know. And, and uh, he instantly started shaking. It's so bad that um, I could feel the tree stand shaking underneath both of us. And the buck has no clue we're here. He's looking past us at this point, looking for that buck that was wheezing at him. And he walks over into a scrape at about 13 yards, slightly quartering away. And, you know, I kind of look down at my son and I'm like, you yeah, want me to shoot this? And he's like, oh, you know, he, he couldn't nod fast enough. And, uh, you know, I drew back the deer, you know, had no clue we were there, was, you know, like the boogeyman getting them type of deal. And, and you know, blew an arrow through him. And uh, it was just super cool. I mean, it happened really fast, but it was uh, it was a great learning uh, lesson for him or an experience, I guess, not really a learning lesson, but he got to experience that. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there's an apprenticeship process to introduce in young adult or young children to hunting. Uh, you don't have to actually, they don't have to go out and kill something if they're not ready. There's plenty different aspects of hunting that, you know, will, will catch their attention. Um, and, and he enjoyed that, you know, he didn't necessarily, you know, yeah, I could have got him a crossbow or, you know, he could have went hunting and shot that deer, but he just wasn't ready for it. And he's told me that, um, so I didn't force him, but he'd like to go along with me. Um, so he got to see that, got to experience it. Um, I let him track it. I mean, literally he found the first blood, um, you know, unbeknownst to him, I thought I heard the deer crash, but it was out of sight, but I wasn't sure. Uh, we were fighting daylight, you know, I, I it was a, I was fighting. I felt like a, a an, an NFL coach. I was fighting the clock because I'm looking at at the you know with the time and it's getting dark and I want him to track it and find it in the daylight without a flashlight and all that stuff. And you know, I, but I also want to give it the the, uh, the right a lot amount of the time you know for it to go. Uh, you know, the 35, 40 minutes, whatever it may be, before you start tracking it. So he could only last about ten minutes. So actually, he you know after ten minutes he had had enough. He was ready to get out of that stand and go look for that deer and. I was pretty confident that I hit it well enough that we would be okay. Um, nice. So anyway, he took up the track and uh, kind of filmed the last part of it. You know, he was 10 years old and, you know, he's just looking at the blood right at his feet and he kept going and <laughs> I could see the deer and uh, he literally tracked, you know, he got about, he was probably about five feet from it before he realized it was laying there. So, it was, you know, another jolt to his system. He couldn't right. believe it was right there right. and he turns around and looks at me and, you know, but anyway, um, super cool experience for both of us so our season you know went really well um he killed a buck in pa i killed a buck in pa and i also killed one in ohio but uh definitely my best season year uh, you know to date nice yeah that's awesome man the uh whenever you mentioned that he was shaking and so bad in the stand like i can literally visualize that because i mean it still happens to me sometimes you know whenever especially if i get surprised or something it's like i don't know that's the part that you don't ever want to lose i don't think is that you know that excitement whenever you see a nice buck and you get all fired up. I mean, you know, hell, I think sometimes for me, especially the beginning of the season, when it's just like, you know, the first couple of hunts, it's like, I'll get excited when I see some does coming up, you know what I mean? Just cause it's hunting season's back and it's what I love to do. And I'm excited to be out. And so that's awesome, man. I'm glad you guys had that, had that experience. He's sounds like he's going to be ate up with it too. Just like his dad, huh? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, you know, it's, I guess that's a good kind of transition there to kind of talk about, 
you know, what QDMA is doing, because you kind of mentioned the, you know, not just the mentored youth hunt that you did during, you know, gun season with him to get his first deer, but also just the, you know, the different things that, you know, we can do with kids to get them out that don't have to necessarily be them, you know, pulling the trigger or releasing an arrow necessarily. But, you know, speaking of that, you know, I know that QDMA had their huge uh, event last year, their annual event uh, in New Orleans, and you guys kind of mapped out your five-year plan, you know, goals and mission and, and so forth. And I wanted to kind of talk about a couple of these, um, couple of these, I guess, pillars, if you will. And then I want to kind of lump in, you know, at the end here, where the largest part of our conversation will take place will be around recruitment, retention, and access. So I guess to get the party started, I guess, can we just talk a little bit about, you know, protecting the white-tailed deer and increase the commitment to research and what QDMA is doing in, in, in those efforts? Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need tools that can keep up. We don't baby our gear and taking on whatever Mother Nature happens to dish out on our hunts. Check out Wicked Tree Gear hand saws and pull saws at wickedtreegear.com. Use promo code TRUTH to save yourself 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. And get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, we had our convention last year in New Orleans and we're there again this year and we kind of unrolled. Um, I don't want to say we, uh, we, we shifted our mission plans, but we kind of tweaked them a little bit um, because there's a, a lot of different things going on right now with the white-tailed deer. Whereas, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, it was a little different landscape. Um, disease wasn't a huge, a huge issue as it is right now. Obviously, you know, there are states that are really fighting CWD, um, TB up in Michigan, you know, so we have to, we, we do a really good job of staying on top of that, um, keeping the hunting public informed, um, you know, meeting with state agencies on, you know, what should or should not be done and so forth. So, um, you know, the white-tailed deer still are, are, are definitely, you know, foremost topic, but, uh, and, and also followed by the habitat and then our hunting heritage um, it was probably it was the fourth cornerstone of our mission before, and we have moved that up um, in the process a little bit, moved it up the ladder, I guess, if you will, you know, right behind the white-tailed deer and the disease issue. Um, we're still, you know, protecting the white-tailed deer through research and management and advocacy, uh, but we're also trying to really um, get more people involved in our hunting heritage. Um, you know, as of late, yeah, there's less and less people. So that's just as important as protecting the deer and the habitat that they live in. Right. And then I know that one of the other pieces of, you know, the the mission overall is conserve habitat through cooperatives. And like I'd mentioned earlier, um, we did a whole podcast with Ryan on this on podcast six, where we talked, you know, exclusively about co-ops and how to get them set up. But just to kind of give a high level, you know, you know, what does that really mean when we're talking about conserving habitat through cooperatives for anyone out there that might not be uh, aware of what those are? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, so, well, I mean, right, you know, a QDMA cooperative um, is basically, it could be a whole different, uh, basic, the basic answer to that is it's, it's a group of landowners that get together and they don't nece- necessarily have to be uh, adjoining landowners. It's just landowners that decide to agree on a certain set of guidelines. Um, you know, one of the biggest things you hear, especially 
nowadays when a lot of people are managing smaller parcels of property is, well, if I don't shoot that certain buck, then, you know, as soon as he crosses the fence, you know, Farmer Brown may. Um, so basically this is working with Farmer Brown and saying, hey, you know, I'm protecting two and a half year old deer. You know, how about you guys do the same as well that way? And usually for the most part of my experiences, I've found that um, <clears throat> it's just a, the, a lack of communication. Most people think Farmer Brown's going to shoot it. Farmer Brown thinks the same thing about you. And then as soon as you, when you end up talking to each other, it's like, wait a minute, I've been wanting to protect those deer, but I hadn't any, you know, anyway, cause I figured you guys were shooting them. So when you open up those, those lines of communication, you can get a lot more done that way. And then what happens also is not only you protecting two and a half year olds or whatever the guidelines may be, um, you, you can actually start to, you find that these landowners are starting to work and improve their habitat. Um, they know that you're protecting two and a half year olds or, or whatever the guidelines are. So then they start doing, you know, maybe timber stand improvements or adding a food plot here or, or letting the field they used to make into hay grow up into, uh, you know, old field regeneration. So one of the, the, the fastest ways we can improve the habitat through the white tail for the white tail deer is through our co-ops. Um, you know, right now we had about 30% of, of our QDMA members, um, are are actually doing have or excuse me 30 percent of our qdma members are tied up into a co-op uh and that's averaging about 1700 acres per co-op so you know we've got about right now our last count about 29 million acres um that qdma members are involved in co-op so that's the quickest avenue for us to you know enhance the habitat we have those people already doing something so through a little bit of education, just through our, our co-ops, we can enhance the habitat on 29 million acres. Um, and we're hoping, you know, that more of that comes along for us. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's how we're trying to enhance the habitat on co-ops. Right. Yeah, that's that's great, man. I mean, it's it's funny because it doesn't take a whole lot. Like you'd mentioned, I think you know, something you had said is really kind of struck a chord with me, which is if you don't talk to Farmer Brown, you might not know that he but he might have the same feelings you do. You know, you just don't know because you haven't spoke with one another. And we had a similar situation on our one family property where, you know, the, the neighboring farmer, by all accounts, a good, good guy, you know, big deer hunter. And, um, you know, we just assumed that they were, you know, you know, not following any type of, you know, management guidelines or anything like that. And uh, we were doing some habitat updates and stuff like that. And we just, he was driving by the one day and we were talking while we were at the cabin and we got to talking and we said we'd seen a couple of nice bucks on camera and he said he had seen a couple of nice ones and we just kind of nonchalantly mentioned that, you know, there was a couple of young ones that we had seen that we weren't going to shoot this year. And he said, yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, we're not, shoot, we're not, we don't shoot anything smaller than an eight point, you know, on, on our property. And so it was just one of those things where there was an assumption between the two of us that he thought we were willing to shoot smaller deer and we thought he was willing to shoot smaller deer. Um, but the reality was that we were both actually working toward the same thing. We just didn't know it. So now there's actually a lot more, yep. you know, information sharing. I wouldn't go as far as to say that we have a formal co-op with him, uh, but we do a lot of, you know, information sharing with him. Uh, we let each other know what deer we're seeing, what deer we've killed. Um, you know, he lets us borrow gear when we need to borrow gear to do any type of food plot work or stuff like that. So um, I guess in a sense, it's a co-op. We just haven't formalized anything, but that's one of those things where it's just, talk to your neighbor and see what they're into. Cause you might be surprised as to what their, what their plans are. But uh, exactly. And, and, and well, that's a good point. I want to touch on a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of the statistics on something like that, but I had a similar situation situation, but it's not formal. It's not on paper, but that's fine. And that's, that's actually, you know, all we're asking to do is, is, you know, reach your hand across the property line and, and introduce yourself to the neighbor 
And, you know, just that first conversation, like you say, you know, he's not shooting anything other than eight or eight points or, or, or bigger. I mean, that's great. And now he knows you are. So, you know, his, his comfort level has just has risen to where, you know, he's probably going to do that extra food plot or you're going to do that extra food plot. And then, you know, through conversation, you may run into somebody else in your area. And again, it doesn't even have to be adjoining properties, but, you know, statistically, the more property you have tied up in some sort of agreement, whether it's antler restrictions or, you know, do, increased doe harvest or, you know, even habitat uh, management can save deer or, you know, enhance the deer hunting. So there's a lot of different avenues there. Even predator control. I've heard some co-ops got formed on coyote hunting. You know, basically a couple of landowners never talk about deer hunting. You know, one day one one guy wanted to coyote hunt. He thought he'd ask him about it. And then, you know, the, the landowner asked why. He was like, well, you know, we're, you know, we try to pay attention to our deer herd and our fawn recruitment rate is down. We're trying to kill coyotes. And, you know, the landowner that he was asking was like, oh man, you know, that sounds like something I want to be involved in type right. of deal. So there are a lot of, a lot of different uh, avenues to that. And we encourage a lot of people and, you know, to the statistics, um, whitetail deer hunting predominantly is done on private land, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, it's, it's somewhere in the, you know, high seventies, low 80% of all whitetail deer hunting is on private land. So, you know, why not reach out to those private landowners and introduce yourself if you have an idea or a philosophy in your area and uh, let them tell you no, you know, but my, my experience has been, even if they tell you no the first time, Hey, I'm not interested. I have family at hunts here and we like to do our thing. That's fine. You know, you keep going what you're doing. And, and if you have a few neighbors doing what, you know, doing in agreement with you, chances are that other neighbor that said they're not interested within a couple of years, they're going to, they're going to come knocking on your door going, Hey, why don't you tell me about that co-op thing again? Uh, because they're going to see what you guys have done. And, and the proof's in the pudding. This isn't speculation at this point. You know, this is science. When you let bucks get older, they end up with bigger antlers and you shoot, you know, more does, you have a better age structure and sex ratio, you know, is where it needs to be for the breeding season. And, you know, the whole thing down, down the line, and it just is, enhances the habitat, enhances, enhances the deer herd and your hunting's better. And um, everybody wants to be a part of that at the end of at the end of the day. It just may take them a little more time to get to the table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this year we had the on that farm particularly we had the the nicest bucks that we've had down there in the past mm-hmm. since we started doing any type of habitat enhancements, uh, which was great. The other benefit that we kind of get out of it, or mutually between the two of us, is you know no one lives at this cabin that we have on this property, so you know they actually will let us know if they see someone that stops by the cabin and they don't recognize the vehicle, you know what I mean? And say, Hey, I saw, I saw this truck down there the other day before they recognized my vehicle. I was pulling into the one field to go check cameras. Um, and they came over and stopped me and said, Hey, who are you? And I was like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm the son-in-law here. I put these food plots in. I'm going to check some cameras. We just talked for a little bit, but that made me feel good that, you know, they noticed that there was someone there that they didn't recognize and they were coming over to check it out. And so it just, and we kind of do the same thing. If we see someone driving through one of their fields spotlighting or something like that, we'll let them know, you know, it's like, Hey, are you guys out tonight? And they're like, Nope, we're not out. Well, someone's, someone's out on your property. You know, so it's a lot of that just kind of working together to make sure, you know, that you're, you're working toward similar goals, but also, you know, protecting the, the work that you both are putting in, you know, so it, it's, it goes beyond, I think, you know, the more than just the, uh, habitat and putting bucks on the buck pool you know it's also kind of makes a nice community and um this is a nice segue into what we're going to kind of talk about which is you know kind of creates that 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 larger hunting heritage and so i think we'll just kind of go ahead and jump into that because the next thing i really want to talk about is the the stuff that you and i really kind of kind of kicked off the idea of us getting getting together and doing another podcast 
was talking about the idea of hunting heritage in general. Because I think, and this is just kind of my perception, you know, is that a lot of times when folks think of hunting heritage, they think of, you know, and, and this is still true, but they might just kind of look at it from the perspective of, you know, the hunting camps and, you know, hunting with your dad or your grandpa or hunting with your uncles or, um, you know, that time that you went out whenever you were a little kid and kind of learned how to hunt. And all those things are true, you know, and I, I agree with those things. But I think there's a piece or things that ha- happen in the background that maybe, you know, are quote unquote, you know, less interesting or sexy or uh, nostalgic might be a better word um, that people don't think about that is that is the basis or the foundation of our hunting heritage. And, and I know you and I have talked about this, but it's like it's recruitment, it's retention and it's access. And these things all kind of work in unison to provide us that hunting heritage. So I just want to kind of start, I guess, by talking about hunter recruitment, why it's important. And yeah, I think it's always been important, but it seems now like there's an added urgency to make sure that we are recruiting not just the youth, but also, you know, those uh, adults who maybe never hunted or did when they were a kid and don't any longer. So can we talk a little bit just about recruitment and the, in the, I guess, the sense of urgency around it today? Sure. Um, you know, this is a complicated topic and there's a lot of different opinions out there. Um, not so much opinions on, on some of the statistics or the data we're looking at right now, but as to why we are where we're at and, you know, maybe what the fix is. Um, but the importance of hunter recruitment, you know, in pertaining to our hunting heritage is, you know, basically right now, um, the needle of hunting license sales is going the wrong direction. We're losing hunters. Um, literally in the last five years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service conducts a, and this is common knowledge now pretty much throughout the industry, but a lot of the you know, the weekend warriors don't realize that this is going on. Uh, and, and maybe because I had, I was kind of surprised when I was, uh, you know, relaying some of the statistics to people and they didn't realize, uh, because they thought they were very involved in hunting being, they followed on social media, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, but usually when you follow it on, on those types of platforms, you only see what you're looking for. Right. So if you're on Instagram and you're a hunter and you follow hunters, you're just going to see it, nothing but hunting. And the reality is, you know, like I was getting to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does a, a, a census about every five years. They've started in 1955. Um, the census was finished up uh, in 2016. They were, uh, put the information out last year, 2017. And basically, we lost 2.2 million hunters. Now, there's some people that argue that we didn't lose, you know, it might not have been that bad, uh, depending on who's doing the counting and, and what you're counting. Still, it, you know, they weren't off by 2 million. Right. We've lost hunters uh, going the wrong direction. Um, so, you know, it is really important right now um, when you look at we all agree as hunters, and it doesn't matter what you're hunting, but we all agree. And, you know, the whole Africa thing has really taught us a lot about conservation through hunting license sales. Uh, hunting license sales is the number one thing that drives conservation. Um, it, it funds just about everything there is out there to fund. Hunters give back more than any other uh, organization out there just through hunting license sales. So when you start losing hunters by the millions in five years, it becomes quite alarming, um, you know, just from the funding perspective. You know, state agencies will be forced to have cutbacks, um, you know, you, and we've seen it uh, in our world. We, there's state agencies out there that don't have deer biologists that work for them anymore. They do a lot of consulting and such with other deer, deer organizations like ourselves or other states, but um, you know, it's just a, there's cutbacks from A to Z. So that's an alarming figure. And then also, obviously, you know, just from the, the fund perspective, um, 
you know, getting youth involved in hunting as you and I did in Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania is, you know, back when we were kids probably had over a million hunters, a million one. Um, you know, it was a huge deal to go the first day of opening, you know, opening season, the Monday after Thanksgiving in Pennsylvania, um, less and less, you know, young adults are doing that. Um, and, and, you know, this is probably where a lot of the opinions come in as to why, uh, one of the biggest things I see is, you know, it's, it's simple, you know, times have changed. Um, when I was a kid, you know, my son is going to be 11 this year. I mean, he's into everything, you know, it's, soccer a couple of days a week it's basketball a couple of days a week it's after school activities um you know i didn't have all that indoor outdoor soccer indoor basketball um you know fall baseball spring baseball you know we didn't have all that it was basically you know a couple of times a year or in the summertime we did everything and man during hunting season we hunted and we fished um you know we didn't have ipads so we you know you know there's a lot of different you know basically times have changed um so we have to kind of go along with that, but some of the saving grace is, you know, we can always introduce kids to hunting. You know, there's going to be kids out there that are, that have that interest. They have that spark. They just need to be introduced to it, even though that they're doing everything else. We're hunters and gatherers by nature. Um, I, I firmly believe that. Um, you know, it's interesting to watch. I've said this a lot of times, and I may even said it on, on uh, the past uh, podcast we did, but it's interesting to watch a young group of kids play hide and seek together yeah. um i really believe that's one of the first forms of hunting you know we i don't think any parent has taught their kid how to play hide and seek they just know how to do it at yeah. a really young age too yeah. um you know so that that's that hunter gatherer in us so they just need exposed to it a little bit um and it may not even be a form it definitely doesn't have to be a form of deer hunting i mean small game is a great gateway into big game hunting and even fishing um there's a theory out there you can teach a kid to fish you'll hunt for life um you know, so <clears throat> take a kid fishing, get them outdoors, show them, you know, that way of life as well as the soccer and the football and the baseball. And, you know, even the iPad, that's fine, too, because that's where we're at. You know, IT is a big part of our, our world right now. So there's nothing wrong with learning that either. Um, and then, you know, the, one of the biggest things we've tapped into just uh, within the last few years is the first time adult onset hunters. So basically, you know, we have a whole group of people out there that may be whatever, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. We've even seen them in their 60s that have the the desire to hunt, but have never have hunted. And especially when you're you're talking about, you know, maybe a 45-year-old male that hasn't hunted ever in his life and works with, you know, males that do hunt, he's really not going to ask, hey, will you guys teach me how to hunt? It's kind of a macho thing. And you know, there's that whole barrier there. You know, you don't really want to break the ice. You just kind of let it go because, you know, think about it. You haven't done it in the last 20 or 25 years. You know, you're not going to embarrass yourself to ask a, your your buddy who does hunt to take you hunting. Um, but we're finding there are those people out there. And it's really, it's been interesting to, to do that uh, type of hunt with first-time adult onset hunters where you're not taking them hunting. The difference between a kid and a, an adult onset hunter is, you want to teach them to become a hunter. Um, and one of the reasons why the difference, the biggest difference between a youth and an adult, you know, if you take a youth hunting, you know, tomorrow uh, and he has the time of his life, he or she has the time of their life. And then the following day they want to hunt or the following week and you're not available. What do they do then? Um, you know, chances are they don't have anybody else to take them. They don't have a driver's license or a vehicle. 
um, they don't have any money, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, it costs a little bit of money to be a hunter. So it's really difficult for them to do it. So they're waiting for you for the next time or somebody else to take them. And, uh, whereas opposed to an adult onset hunter, you know, you teach them through a process to become a hunter and it may take, you know, a season, but the next season, you know, chances are they can do it themselves. And likely they have children that they can teach to be hunters as well. So you can impact, you know, maybe two or three by teaching one. Uh, whereas a youth, you know, you're impacting that person, which is fine too. We're always going to do that. But we're saying, you know, we're going to also try to teach adult hunters to be hunters as well. Um, we have a couple programs we've been calling the Field to Fork, and, and we did a, a test run in Athens at the home office. Um, Hank Forrester, our, our programs manager down there, went to the farmer's market in Athens and basically set up a booth at the farmer's market and was cooking venison. Um, you know, food's the gateway um, to hunting. You know, everybody loves food. It doesn't matter if you're a hunter or a non-hunter. For the most part, if you're like me, we love to eat. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, Hank was down there, you know, cooking venison and the smell was permeating the farmer's market and you know, basically, hey, you want to try some venison? Go ahead. You know, just giving out samples of venison, and people were that started a conversation. You know, hey, are you interested in wanting to be a hunter? And and uh, interestingly enough, there was a whole group of people that were. Uh, we had a sign up sheet. We put these people through a program, a safety course. It was archery, so we were teaching them how to shoot crossbows. Um, and we ended up taking these people hunting. One of them was sixty four years old, and it was back to that. You know, he didn't want to ask anybody, but it, the most interesting part of his story was he worked with a group of guys that went on a hunting trip every year and, you know, he would be part of the conversations leading up, uh, see the pictures during, and then even afterwards they would be uh, telling the stories. And he always sat on the edge of his seat. He never wanted to put himself out there to ask if he could be part of it. Um, they never thought to ask, not anything wrong with, you know, they just assumed that he didn't want to hunt uh, type of deal. And here, through the farmer's market and, and, you know, our share your hunt program, he wanted to learn how to be a hunter and he, he became a hunter. He hunted with us the first year he killed a deer. Uh, and then he went on his own the following year and killed a deer and also got his ground, grandchildren involved. So that's awesome. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, and every hunter needs to do that. Um, you know, seek somebody out and I guarantee you they're in your family. Look around at Thanksgiving, sitting at your table and you may have an uncle or a cousin that only comes in for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it may be. And you know, they've never hunted, you know, that ask them if they want to learn how to hunt, um, and do that, you know, and you may be surprised. They may tell, you no, and that's fine. As we know, it's not for everybody. Um, but if they may tell you yes, and then take it upon yourself to do it. And I know myself included, maybe yourself, you know, when you're a whitetail deer hunter and hunter, and you're managing property and, you know, Hey, you don't want to give up your best spot. Right. Right. Um, right. you know, but if you do, it's only one deer, one season, that's fine too. But also think about it. You can do turkeys, you can do squirrels, you can do small game. I mean, there's so much, there's so many aspects out there to hunting. And also another, you know, as I mentioned, the food being the gateway, even if they say no, you know what, if, if you're killing a couple deer a year or a couple hogs a year in the South, whatever it may be, offer them some wild game. Like uh, food is everything, man. They love that. Um, you know, people love to eat the wild game, especially if they know how to prepare it well. Um, you know, we've worked with a couple uh, local chefs. I have myself uh, really great chefs that can just do some amazing things with wild game. You would have no idea that's what you're eating. Um, it's so good. And, you know, 
some of the most non-hunters I've ever been around. You know, never thought they would go hunting, never thought they would eat wild game after eating wild game, had no idea they were. And I told them they were, and you know, maybe I didn't convince them to become a hunter, but it definitely opened their eyes to, wow, there's something to this. I can secure my own protein. Um, I don't have to go to a store and, and not know where it came from and this, that, and the other. So there's a lot of moving parts to it and there's a lot of aspects to it, but seeking out those first time adult onset hunters, coupling those with youth programs, you know, we need every hunter out there to realize it's a really important time to do that. And it would be easy enough for every hunter to do. If it, I mean, think of it, there's 10 million hunters in the country. If a third of them, you know, would take one person, one new person and taught them to be a hunter, you know, we would save it just, just like that. Um, interestingly enough, last year, and we, part of our new mission goals is to uh, introduce a million new hunters in five years to, to, to hunting. Um, last year alone, QDMA volunteers, members and volunteers took 160,000 new people hunting. That's awesome. So, you know, we missed the Yeah. We missed the 200,000 number that we needed to hit a million, but we were at 160,000 and that really moves the needle and NWTS doing it. Ducks Unlimited are doing it. Uh, Rocky Mountain Elks doing it. We're all trying to do it. That's what we need to do uh, yeah. to save to save this. Yeah. Uh, when I say save, I shouldn't say it's in dire straits, but it's what we need to do to sustain it right. uh, for sure. Right. You know, to keep it as you and I remember it. Right. I mean, I think the one thing I want to touch on there, man, is I think you know you hit a first off, you hit on a ton of good points that I think are super important that I don't I don't think people think of just every every day, you know. I think the older hunter aspect is really is really interesting um, for for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I'll just give you a personal example. Like for me, I guess let me just back up for a second. To to help do things, people always think they need to have huge resources or huge opportunities or whatever the case might be. The reality is that you just need an opportunity to share something with somebody. It's really all you need. You don't need to have a ton of money. You don't need to spend necessarily even a ton of time with a person to take to take them out it's like everyone can just do a small piece and the in in and, and, and when you sum all that up it becomes a pretty large movement right and so for me it's like <clears throat> i recognize for me I, I i take my daughter out and i take her hunting just about every year every year we go turkey hunting she's she's young yet um she enjoys it but i needed to do i needed to do more right so i started trying to figure out like who is a possible candidate for an adult hunter that i can take out right because as you said you know, with kids, it's there. There's so much vying for their time now that it's hard to know whether or not, as I introduce my daughter to hunting, whether or not it's something that's going to stick or not. You know, I'm not 100 percent sure. She likes it. She's always going to appreciate it. I can, I, I do know that. Um, but whether she becomes an avid hunter, you know, time time will only tell. And so I started thinking about who's someone that I could possibly get into this that I think would really, really enjoy it and probably take to it. And there was a buddy of mine at work, and I started thinking about this almost in, I'm, I'm a marketing guy by, by trade. It's what I do professionally. So I started thinking about it almost as a marketing problem, right? And I started thinking about, well, what are some trends and things that I could take advantage of to help me find the right person that I think would maybe adapt or adopt rather, you know, a hunting perspective. And so when I started thinking about it, I had a buddy at work who moved here from Los Angeles. I met him when he moved here, you know. Um, you know, he's not, uh, you know, you're a typical, typical type of hunter guy. Um, but what he's really into is in, he's into unique experiences and he's into interesting food. So I started talking to him about my hunts and he was always just interested in them because he's just interested in what I was seeing, what I was doing. Right. So that's where we kind of started. And then I was doing, you know, I went on an elk hunt and I killed a deer this year and all those things were great. And I shared some elk meat with him and he thought that was great. And then, 
he started kind of opening up to the idea of like how I harvested the, the animal and how I prepared it. And, you know, it was a wild, clean protein that I procured myself. He's into healthy living. And I kind of explained like, you know, the health benefits of eating wild game and so forth. And then I started doing some goose hunting once deer season was over and he likes goose. And so I, sh- I shared some goose with him. Right. And he was like, oh, this is great. So I finally just kind of asked him the one day, I was like, hey, you know, I was like, do you think you would ever be interested in going out and trying to like hunt and I can kind of show you how to procure your own wild protein? You know, I was like, where you can, you know, kill a turkey or a goose or whatever and take it home and fix it and know that, you know, you knew exactly where that bird had been and you put it on your plate. And he said, yeah, I'd be interested in that. So this year, this spring, I'm actually taking him out to do his first turkey hunt. And we're going to go out and shoot together beforehand and just kind of give him the whole experience. And that I think is the most important thing is that you just kind of find that person that you think might be willing to adopt, you know, and there's a lot of trends out there just from a marketing perspective with like the healthy eating movement, like the paleo diets and the keto diets and stuff like that, that people that do that are looking for really clean alternative protein sources versus buying it in a store. Um, And I think those are a ripe target, just like the farmer's market was a perfect place for that because those are people who are into looking for natural and organic foods. You know what I mean? So that's a great, great place to start. And then there's another aspect of it, too, for those stressed out, you know, people I'll call like that work, you know, in in an office type of setting. Right. That there's this whole and this is kind of hokey pokey. So don't laugh at me, Ryan. But it was, uh, it was, I forget what newspaper it was in. And it was in a couple magazine articles, but they call it this thing called nature baiting. You and I would call that hunting, right? But people who don't hunt call it, call it nature bathing, going and just going and getting lost in the woods for the day and maybe just sitting. And we call that sitting in a tree stand with a bow, right? And so there's people that are looking for this escape that hunting is that escape for them. You know what I mean? It's like if you just introduce them to that opportunity, that's exactly what they're looking for. They just don't know it yet. So identifying those people, I think, is really important because uh, there are people out there who want those things. To your point, they just maybe don't know how to ask or are a little embarrassed to ask and don't know how to start. And let's be the ones to help give them a starting point. You know what, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And there, you, you touched on a lot of different stuff there as well. Um, but like, you know, the, the organic food or the local force, uh, there's a huge movement out there trying to, to source your own organic protein, grow your own, you know, vegetables. Um, you know, there are a lot of rooftops in New York City now with gardens on them and, and, and chickens and little chicken pens that have their own eggs type of deal. Um, that's a, that, that is the biggest thing. And the, and the common denominator is the food. I mean, you think about it, everywhere we look right now, we see a picture of food. I mean, I watch the food network constantly. You know? <laughs> I'm a foodie. I yeah. love food. You know what I mean? Like, and there are a lot of people out there that don't even realize that hunting, you know, is a way to, to source your own protein. They don't realize that you could get, you know, 60, 70 pounds of organic, some of the best protein from a deer. You know what I mean? Like, or, you know, a wild boar, elk, whatever it may be, wherever's in your region to offer. And when they do find that and they find out that they can actually cook it and make it taste great, I mean, it really changes their mind. Um, when you're talking about, you know, the, the older hunters, a, a couple of statistics that I failed to mention in the the, the hunting license survey. Also, right now, you know, the average age of American licensed buyers, 56 years old. Um, and all research shows that there's basically a hard stop at 70. You know, so it's really important at this point because never before in our history can you arguably put a timeline on hunting as we know it, you know, let's just say the next 15 years. Um, you know, not saying when you hit 70, you stop hunting, but we're looking at this from an economical standpoint. Basically, if you're still hunting at 70, you know, you're probably, you know, entering retirement or are retired. So you're on a fixed income. You have a lifetime of 
accumulated gear, you know, so you don't really need to buy, you know, what you, you need, you needed before. Um, so you just don't spend the money like you used to. You don't travel as far as you used to. You don't take a hunting trip or a fishing trip. Uh, you don't camp, you know, right. <laughs> you don't go overnight, uh, wherever. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting statistics to look at out there and then speculate what may or may not happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, you know, we need to, we need to seek out those people like you, the, the person you work with and you're going to take you know him to be a hunter. And that was basically through food or, or as, as you put it, the interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those people out there. You just need to ask if where they're at. And I think one of the, I want to say misconceptions or, or I think probably what scares people away the most, especially when coming from me or our organization, we're a deer organization. So I think they think that, you know, we're asking them to seek out a stranger and take them deer hunting on your property in your best stand. And that's not necessarily the case. Right. If that is the case, great. Um, but it's not, we want to, we want to build hunters from the ground up. And I, I could arguably say that it may work better if these, this person that you're going to show how to become a hunter actually had the spot for you to take them to. Okay. Um, and if they didn't, in, in, in Pennsylvania and just about every other state out there, there is a ton of public land. And one of the things you have to realize is you do not have to be successful the first time out, or the second time out, or the third time out to be considered a hunter. And, you know, as you put it, nature baiting, I mean, there's so much, so many different as- aspects to enjoy about hunting that it honestly, even for me, and I'm sure yourself and probably 80% of the other deer hunters out there, it's it's not all about the kill, man. Yeah, There's yeah. so much more to it. The whole romance involved in hunting is why I do it. I mean, it, there there's a whole different aspect that people think, especially the non-hunting public. Um, but you know, so I, I think it might it, it probably would work better if these people had their own places, and then you could take them hunting there. Basically, hey, here's your spot. You know, this is what I would do if it was mine. And then also, um, I've done this a few times myself. You know, if if uh, you put them through the quote unquote your program and you turn them loose the next year, make sure they have your number. They're probably going to need to call you. I've had people call me first time hunters. You're not going to believe this, but I hit a deer and I need help tracking it. Absolutely. I love that. Yep. Um, you know, we're field dressing it. You know what I mean? They need help with that skinning it. And then I've even invited people to my home. I show them how to cook the deer, you know, or the turkey or whatever it may be. So but. It sounds like a lot, a huge undertaking, and it, it it very well may be. But honestly, the reward is so much better. It's so fulfilling. Um, you know, life's short. You're probably going to make friends that you didn't know you had, uh, you know, or ever could have had. Um, it just opens up so many different doors, and you feel better because of it. Um, it honestly, you know, I, I couldn't stress enough how much this has changed different people's lives for sure. Just, just looking for that one person, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it does a couple of things. I think one, like you, like you mentioned, you create this relationship that maybe you didn't have before, which is great unto itself. Um, you created a new hunter, which helps move us toward our, our cause overall, which is another bonus, right? Which is a great thing. And then I think the other thing that maybe sometimes gets lost is that, you know, for some of these non hunters, these people are going to then go talk to other people who are non hunters, right? So you just kind of create like this, this pay it forward kind of, channel right but the other important piece is is that that person now sees the value of the animal beyond just seeing it on tv or beyond just seeing it on 
in a picture or whatever the case might be. It's like, it, to your point, when you start talking about the conservation stuff, when the Africa thing, ha- you know, happened with the lion and or whatever animal it might be this time or the next, you know, there's a value for that animal now. They have a value, a value for it, um, which is really, which is really important for for conservation that people see that value in 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 the uh, in the creatures that inhabit these wild places. Um, I think, you know, the other part that whenever we start talking about value, you know, is you know, unfortunately, I think with everything, you know, if you follow the money, you'll find where um, potential problems and and potential successes are. And as you mentioned, with the license sales you know, that support conservation, that's obviously, you know, extremely important, but the down channel effect of losing hunters is kind of what you said, you know, when you started talking about the average age of the, of the license holder is 56 or license purchaser is 56 years old. And then once you hit 70 to your point, you're on a fixed income, you start aging out of the buying, even if you are still continuing to hunt, but you're just not hunting or you're just not purchasing additional gear. Maybe you're not taking those trips any longer out West or whatever, because your body can't, you know, take the, uh, take the abuse or whatever the case might be. There's trickle effect of, uh, to that money that impacts businesses, that impacts you know retailers, and all those things contribute to conservation through the uh, Pittman Robertson Act. Is that what is? Am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of other you know trickle down you know effect that happens downstream that if you think about it is is more impactful than just the the purchase of the of the of the license per se. But what it also does is that reduces the amount of money that hunters have to use to make sure that our voice is being heard in a lot in a lot of different arenas whether it's the political arena or, or whatever the case might be you know money is the, as i always say like to say is like money talks bs walks you know when you start losing hunters and you start losing hunter numbers and license sales and then you start losing the sales and retailers we start doing a lot more walking and a lot less talking you know for for lack of a better way to put it yes absolutely um it is the driving force behind it for sure and you know, I, I, it's in, in my in the industry that you know I work in, so I'm around hunters. You know, basically every day. Um, it, it's it was an eye opener this year. You know, the last six seven months, I guess that how many hunters didn't realize. If you ask a lot of the hunters out there right now, they would say hunters or hunting has never been better. Um, it may never have never been better in their world, but you know, like I said, the the, the big picture, uh, the needle is going the wrong direction. Um, and that's what needs, you know, we just need a little bit of exposure to the problem. We need to uh, offer solutions to the problem, which I really believe we are. And then we just need people to, to want to step up and help uh, for a lot of different reasons, as you just pointed out. There's a ton of different reasons why. Uh, but for the most part, you know, people like you and I, and probably, like I say, you know, every other deer hunter out there, we understand what it is and why we do it. Um, and we want to do our part to make sure it doesn't change. Uh, anytime soon anyway. Right. I think the other thing, you know, important to kind of talk about is there's been a lot of, you know, movements, which I think are, have been great for, you know, conservation in general um, and supporting a lot of different and people supporting in a lot of different ways. I think the one thing that sometimes people lose sight of at large is that, you know, as you had mentioned, especially with, you know, hunting license uh, dollars and so forth, hunters are, are huge conservationists. But, you know, I think, well, the one part that I think people kind of miss is that, you know, if people are concerned, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this the right way to make sure my point comes across right. If if conservation is is important, not just to hunters, but a broader universe of people, right, that maybe non-hunters and so forth, or maybe they're non-consumptive users of, of lands and so forth. Hunting is one of the most foolproof ways for someone to go from 
hunter to active participant in conservation. Like that connection between hunter and land is one of the strongest bonds that I think that people overlook. You know, it's, I don't, I'm just going to speak from my own personal, you know, I guess experience. I don't know very many people that um, I'm friends with or acquaintances with that are big time hikers, bikers, kayakers, canoers, whatever the case is, right? That will do habitat enhancements or do things specifically to land for the betterment of whatever wild creatures are, are living on it. To me, at least in my sphere, the only folks who I know who a- actively do those types of things are are hunters. And I think that that's an important thing for people to kind of take away is that if you want to create more conservation, we should really be thinking about how do we create more hunters because that is a more true and quicker line to conservation than almost anything else. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's basically, you know, the the, the direct line, if you will, you know, right. as you say, you become a hunter, you know, you're, you're yourself and everybody includes, you know, you're, you're impacting the wildlife and the habitat almost instantly. And you're right. Um, it, it is, you know, probably the biggest group out there that is doing anything. And I, I mean, I say that very carefully, right. not that there aren't, you know, hikers, mountain bikers or what have you or anything, but I'm just saying, for the most part, I mean, hunters are, are a direct impact. And, and like, you know, back to the beginning of the, the podcast and our conversation, how we hope to enhance the habitat through co-ops, uh, you know, that's our direct line. You know, let's think about this. 80% of deer hunting is on private land. We have 29 million acres tied up in co-ops. And one of our mission goals is to en- enhance the habitat for the white-tailed deer. Boom, there it is, that direct line. We have all these hunters out there doing certain things on co-ops. We're going to educate them how to make it better, and in turn, it's going to enhance the habitat for white-tailed deer. But not only white-tailed deer, the greatest thing about that is when you enhance habitat, specifically in your mind for deer, you're enhancing the habitat for a whole broad, uh, you know, from songbirds, snakes, ground voles. There's so many different studies out there of how you enhancing deer habitat enhances habitat just about from anything else. Um, Wild turkey, you know, the Audubon Society uh, loves the KDMA and white-tailed deer managers because you know, I think it's, I forget these statistics exactly, but it's, it's almost 90% uh, of songbirds nest within four feet of the ground, right? So white-tailed deer eat within four feet of the ground. So when we're doing timber stands improvement, you know, maybe select cut or clear cut, we're regenerating growth. Guess what? Songbirds have a place to nest now. They're not nesting in treetops, you know, 80 feet up in the air. They nest within four feet of the ground. Uh, you let an old field grow up into, or a, a, a newer field grow up into old field management, and you have that whole array of, of native warm season grasses and CRP and, and whatever it may be in there that just it becomes cover for, you know, ground voles, moles, mice, songbirds. I mean, you name it, wild turkey feed for them, deer feed, cover for fawns, uh, you know, nesting cover for any turkey, you know, ringneck pheasant, whatever it may be. So, I mean, we are really moving the needle when it comes to enhancing habitat and protecting wildlife. And in turn, our hunting heritage, because then doing all that provides opportunity for the hunters, right? So it all goes together. There's a lot of moving parts to it, but it all goes together. Uh, and any little thing is is one thing, as you touched on, that you could be doing, you know, any little thing that you may want to do. Right. Yeah. Definitely. I, yeah. I think, uh, you know, to make sure that I'm clear, I think you made a good point is that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater with the non-consumptive folks. It's, you know, not suggesting that that, that, that group does, doesn't uh, 
contribute anything uh, necessarily. Um, you know, I think the important thing is that that group out that group is a group out there that enjoys the outdoors too. It's more, I think, of how do we how do we get them, you know, to be included as you know, even more so than right. they, are, probably, they already are. Those groups are probably our easiest targets, so to speak, if they're not hunters but they're already enjoying the outdoors. I'd much rather approach them and say, "Hey, would you learn? Would you like to be learn how to become a hunter?" You know, because chances are, if you're a hiker, um, you know, you you obviously appreciate nature, mm-hmm. and if you you know want to show them all the aspects of hunting again, that romance. It's just not about going out in November with a deer rifle or a bow, you know, and trying to kill a deer. The whole romance to it is what really attracts you and holds you there. So when you start showing them, you know, if you're if you're a hiker and enjoy nature and you show them that romance that's probably attracted you and I, they really, you know, wow, I can't believe I've missed this my whole life type of deal. You know, like, you know, they, they, they feel like uh, they're behind the eight ball a little bit and they want to learn everything they can. Right. And we see that in our, our deer steward programs. Um, you know, we have a lot of first time uh, landowners or maybe people that just got in hunting and they, they, they're in it for one season and they start to, you know, ask questions, uh, you know, asking their buddies or Googling, you know, how to enhance habitat here, there, or the other, and then they end up signing up for a deer steward program online or in person. Um, but we meet a lot of those, those individuals that way. Yeah. And I think the other important thing is too, as I'm, as I continue to kind of think about this is that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, as we kind of touched on here, there's a lot of different ways you can get involved and you can help and, and so forth. And there's a lot of, different groups of people out there that are supporting different things and, and so forth. And there's the non-consumptive folks, which, you know, we'd love to bring them into the, into the fold. But I think the important thing is that we can do as a, as a hunting public is that make sure that we're supporting the right things that are, you know, moving, I guess, our heritage in the, in the direction that we want it to go in. So I think, you know, just being mindful of all the, I'll give this kind of, I guess, analogy as there are a lot of things, uh, uh, and and you know uh, resources and so forth that are vying for kids' time, the youth's time, and, and impacting whether or not they might or may or may not hunt, just because of purely they may not have enough time to get involved because they've got a lot of other things going on that you know are taking their attention. The same thing happens with our dollar. So you know there's a lot of you know organizations and so forth that are out there that are vying for your dollar for different aspects of um out the outdoors you know whether it's purely conservation or whether whatever the case might be right so i would just say you know making sure that where you are contributing or where you're committing your time and your dollars is a place that's actually benefiting the areas that you want to benefit you know so you know you know qdma is a great example it's as a deer hunter it's like i'm you know i'm i'm for you know the betterment of the, of, of the deer population and making sure that we have places uh, places to hunt and conservation and, and all those all those things and so for me you know being a member of QDMA is really where I find that I get the most benefit personally and where I want to see hunting go and that that will provide a halo effect on all the other things that I am uh, passionate about in the outdoors such as conservation as a whole. Right. So it's like, I'm, I'm mindful about where I put that, you know, I think that that's one thing people need to kind of think about is not just, you know, you know, yes, you take someone out and hunt and do those things, but it's like, whenever you make your personal contributions, how are you making those and who are you making those to? And then also, you know, what brands you're supporting and so forth, whenever you're, when you're buying, you know, hunting gear or a truck or whatever, it's like, just, you know, do, do 10 minutes of digging to figure out, you know, what they're all about, that company's all about to make sure that those dollars potentially are going to get funneled back to something you believe in. Yeah, absolutely. I could go so many different ways with that. Right. Um, I've spent a lot of time, um, 
you know, just kind of looking at data and understanding what people are doing or not doing. And, and as you say, you know, not only the dollar, but just time spent. And I can give you, I'll, I'll touch on the use side and this is personal experience with my son, right? So he, he's a soccer player, loves soccer. And, and, you know, we, his mother and I decided that, you know, it come time where, you know, they want to do traveling soccer and it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, we're playing soccer two nights a week as it is, you know, plus practice and then conditioning. So potentially three to four nights a week, we're doing something, you know, soccer related and then travel soccer is on the weekend. So, you know, it's, it's away from home. It's out of town. Most times there's money spent, you know, in hotel rooms and food and you basically play soccer, you know, all day Saturday, most of the day Sunday. Um, we just decided that, you know what, we have plenty to do uh, anyway. And one of the biggest things we like to do or I like to do on the weekends is enjoy the outdoors. You know, right now, you know, we're getting ready to do some uh, some habitat uh, management stuff on the ground. We hunt um, food plots, tree plantings, fishing season's coming. You know, we're going to play soccer during the week, but on the weekends, that's, that's kind of like the family time. You know, we're not going to be traveling and that may not be for everybody, but that's that conscious decision. You know, let's let's think about this. What are we going to get out of travel soccer? And there's, I know plenty of travel soccer parents, so I don't feel bad for saying this. You know, there's some kids out there that may get, you know, that scholarship or whatever they're looking for or just love soccer that much. That's fine, you know, but it's, again, it, just as hunting is not for everybody, maybe travel soccer or travel baseball may not be for everybody too. So, Think about it that way. Think about, you know, the money that you may spend on that could be spent for something in the outdoors type of deal, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and then, yes, you know, back to every family is probably on a, a fixed budget of some sort or a budget anyway, a monthly budget, you know, so disposable income is, you know, some have more, some have less, but still, you know what you can spend every month. Um, look at where you're spending your dollars. Uh, you know, there's 10 million, give or take 10 million, 10.5 million licensed deer hunters um, in the country right now. And I don't know, 75 to 80% of them hunt within 20 minutes of their home. They right. do all their hunting within 20 minutes of their house. So, you know, when you're given that money or you're donating to a nonprofit or whatever it may be, think about it where your money's being spent. Is it directly impacting what you hunt the most uh, or where you hunt the most? You know, nothing against you know, the the public land movement out west, that's great. That They're doing a huge, a big part of advocacy and it needs to be done, and especially back here. But, you know, does it make sense for you if you hunt the farm behind your house to give money to something that's, you know, fighting for, you know, public land in, in Oregon or Montana or whatever it may be? And it very well may be make the most sense for you. That's fine. But think about it, you know, because... Right. As I say, we're losing money, and those dollars do count. They do add up. Um, they definitely move the needle. So look at the big picture. Think about it. Think how you can be involved. You know, is it worth your family's time and money to get, you know, your son or daughter involved at a, at a deeper level than you may be right now? And then, and what can they get from it? You know, and it, it may be all, lead to all good and great things. Um, and it's all through education. You know, some of these these types of discussions need to be had. Uh, in front of your hunting camp, it may be, um, you know, <clears throat> the sooner people realize that, again, that, that the major needle is going the wrong direction, uh, I think you know, we'll save it quicker. Right. For sure. Yeah. 
Well, man, I know I've kept you here about an hour. I want to be sensitive to your uh, to your time, and since I'm a little under the weather, I'm, I'm probably only about you know five minutes from a, a coughing fit. I've managed to hold off for about an hour. Um, so before we uh, before we wrap this thing up, man, I just want you to uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of let people know where they can find out more about QDMA and places they might be able to 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 get educated and, and follow what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our, our, probably our biggest platform is QDMA.com. Um, and then obviously we're on all the social medias, the Quality Deer Management Association on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, on Facebook under Ryan Fjord, Instagram under Ryan Fjord, um, QDMA. So, uh, you know, definitely if you have any questions or you want to learn more, how can you be involved, please send us an email. We have a contact us page. You can email me directly at rfior at qdma.com. Um, I'd be happy to answer any question or get you in touch with the right people anyway. Um, so sure. You know, I appreciate your time, the opportunity to, to, uh, you know, try to make people aware of what we are trying to do and, and hopefully, and I, I really feel we're going to, we are going to achieve the mission, uh, our five-year mission. We're going to achieve it. So, you know, we are going to hopefully mentor a million new hunters and enhance the habitat for the whitetail deer for the future generations. And, but we can't do it without your help and, you know, everybody else's help out there. So reach out to us, uh, if you'd like to learn anything else about it. Awesome. And, uh, we, I want to make sure to mention that, you know, we appreciate the work that you do, man. Um, all you guys at QDMA, uh, are fighting the good fight. And, uh, I hope everyone out there, you know, I'm sure they will, you know, a lot of deer hunters are passionate about the, about the sport and about hunting and stuff like that. And so, you know, I have no doubt that you guys are going to reach your goals, but just want to make sure that I send my gratitude to, to all you guys for, for the work you put in and, and helping kind of push all these initiatives, initiatives along. So happy to have you on and, uh, thanks for coming on buddy. All right, Clint. Appreciate it. Anytime. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. We'd like to thank Ryan for joining us. Be sure to check out QualityDeerManagementAssociation.com, a really great place for resources. Also, be sure to follow Ryan on Facebook and Instagram. We'd like to, of course, thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be sure that it's delivered to your devices anywhere you go. Uh, We'd be super appreciative of that. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Obsession Bows, Ozonics, Trophy Ridge, Tecumani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, and Trophy Taker Rests. And until next time, we'll see y'all. Makes me proud, makes me steal. I could show you through the door. If it all It takes a special knowing to call a fall Damaged heads, broken letters Nationalize yourself in numbers But I gotta get
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.